We are continuing on our study. This is the third week. I believe uh, Troy taught here in this class last week, uh, combined class. And we're talking about living by the book, uh, being people that are fully devoted to Bible study. What this class is and what it's designed to do is to help us to actually make sense of and make a greater sense of what it is that we read within the pages of Scripture. Appreciate those who have uh, offered encouragement about this class. And there have been several that have said, you know, uh, I've, you know, lived and I've uh, studied, but I've never studied how to study the Bible. And that's what this is designed to do. And as all three adult Bible classes in here are trying to do and trying to, to um, uh, come to grips with and to look at, um, hopefully it is we understand that uh, this is going to be something that's going to serve us not only now, but certainly in the future as we grow, as we pray uh, to be men and women of God. First great step in uh, Bible study is the step of observation. Remember the big three? What are they? Observation, interpretation, and application. One more time. Big three. Observation, interpretation, and application. One more time. Observation, interpretation, and application. Those are the process, holistically, of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is, not, is a big word that just means the science of how to study. It's studying how to study, and as I look at a piece of literature, I want to look at it, and I want to derive the meaning that I'm supposed to derive from it, and we all know people that uh, look at the Bible and say, oh, yes, this verse tells me that God just wants me to be happy. Well, if I don't take that in the science of hermeneutics and uh, the study of interpretation, then what's going to happen is I'm going to derive principles and things that God may not necessarily have intended in the first place. And again, that's what we're all about, is looking and rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 15. And the first great step in Bible study is observation, where we ask and answer the question, what is it that I see? What is it that I see? Because, folks, if we don't really see what it says in God's word, it's not likely we're going to do what it says with the proper motivation. We're praying the great prayer, open my eyes that I may behold what? Wonderful things from your word. Open my eyes. What you're praying for is the spirit of observation, understanding that I want to see what God has intended for my life. Psalm 119, verse 18. We're asking for the power to observe, to have sight and insight, really to see what God is saying. Um, you remember uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes, reading through the books. And, and what Sherlock Holmes used to say to Watson is observation. The difference between Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson is the power of observation. Sherlock Holmes is really looking for the details and looking for uh, how the whole picture fits together. Remember, we described ourselves as detectives, Bible detectives. We're seeing the result of what God has said. And what we do as his people is look back and say, all right, here is the scene. How is this put together so that we can draw the correct, uh, the correct, um, uh, the correct conclusion based upon that? But Sherlock Holmes would say, observation, my dear Watson, you see, but you do not observe. It's a developed process. It's a developed process. It's not something that's going to happen by accident. Um, there's a professor at Harvard many years ago who was once asked what his greatest contribution was to science and the scientific field. And he said, I've taught men and women to observe. What do you mean by that? He would place a fish on a dissecting tray beneath the nose of a student. And he would say, all right, student, I want you to write down everything that you see. 
And the students would write down, they'd start writing, they'd start writing, they'd start writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. And after about 10 minutes, the students would look up and say, Professor, I'm done. He said, no, keep looking. After 15 minutes, the students would raise their hand and say, uh, sir, I'm done. And he'd say, keep looking, keep looking, keep observing, keep observing, keep observing. They did this not just one class period, but they did this for two whole weeks. What's the answer? The answer is you always look, and what he's trying to do is train them to observe. There's a difference between just seeing, yeah, I see the fish, and then really noticing how it's put together and noticing the parts and the details. Folks, the same thing's true for Bible study. Observation is really the act of perceiving, noticing, watching, or regarding attentively. Um, you ever closed your Bible in frustration? Where it is that you <laughs> wonder why you didn't get more out of it? Suggestion is that there's really two things that are keeping us from that. Number one, we didn't necessarily know how to read it. And number two, we didn't really necessarily know what to look for when we did study. This is not to said to insult anybody, but to help and instruct. How can one really observe when we don't really do these things well, don't really read well, and don't really know what to look for? You remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees. You realize in Scripture, some 12 times, Jesus had to go to the religious leaders, the most well-read men of his day, and he would say to them, Have you not read? Have you not read? Here are people that have given their lives to the law of God, and here are the uh, people who have given their lives to understanding and looking at God's word and making sense of it. And what Jesus is telling is, listen, you've maybe read these things, but you haven't really observed what it says here in the text. They didn't understand what they had been reading. If this is true to them, folks, it can be true for us. We must recapture great reading skills because without them, we're not going to be great Bible students. Remember this, as you read your Bible daily, hopefully, and as you look into God's word, if you don't understand what you're reading when you're reading God's word, you're basically wasting your time. You're basically wasting your time. If you couldn't look up and tell somebody what it was that you just read uh, as if your life depended on it, you haven't read with comprehension, but really what we haven't done is observed what the text says. Here's two suggestions. This is on your outline number three. Two basic suggestions for reading God's word. Number one, read it like it's the first time you've ever seen it. Read it like it's the first time you've ever seen it. It's been said, finish the sentence, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. But it's also true to say familiarity breeds ignorance. One of the great killers of good Bible study is, I already knew that. Why would I want to go back to Matthew 13 and read all the parables, the great parables in the parable chapter, if it is that something that I've already known? I already knew that. Well, I want to find out something that I haven't known. We have to develop the mindset, the discipline of seeing these eternal truths as if it were the first time we'd ever seen them, right? Jesus in Matthew 13 talked about a man who uh, found, a per or found a treasure that was hidden in a field, right? There was a man who was in the marketplace diligently searching and uh, for that pearl of great price. Did he find it? He did. And looking at that and likening to the kingdom of God is kind of like what we're doing this morning and talking about this with regard to Bible study. We want to 
maybe in some respects stumble across some treasure buried in God's word. We want in some respect to go and we want to diligently search for pearls of beauty because we know they're there. It's just a matter of looking into it and finding it. Number one, read it like it's the first time that you've ever seen it. The second tip that I would give as we begin the study is learn to read scripture like it's really a love letter from the most special person to you. Learn to read scripture like it's really a love letter from God to you. <laughs> if we read the Bible with half the concentration, children paid attention to Disney movies. We would be walking Bibles, wouldn't we? <laughs> they could sing every lyric of, of every popular Disney song, but when we look into God's word and we want to really understand that this is something that God has written for me and becoming a man of God or you and becoming a woman of God, then we begin to grasp the fact that this is really a love letter that God has written to us. Questions or comments as we begin our uh, strategies for first race reading scripture? Tops observations. All right, remember, I'm the one functioning on one brain cell, right? Not y'all. So I want you to think deeply about these things as we move through them. Number one. Strategies for first-rate reading of Scripture. Read Scripture thoughtfully. Read Scripture thoughtfully. Scripture does not yield its fruit to the thoughtless and the lazy. If we throw our minds into neutral when we come to the Bible, we can expect that we're not going to get a whole lot out of our Bible study. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 is a great scripture to write down here underneath number 1. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent. Right? Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent. Study. Make a diligent, studied effort because we want to be people who are approved of God. That's not lackadaisically saying, listen, I've got to build a fence in my backyard, and so I'm going to uh, just take the shovel and half-heartedly kind of start digging up the dirt, right? What's the deal? If I want to build a fence, I want to get the job done, and I want to do a good job. When I come to Bible study, I've got to understand that I make that diligent studied effort because I am a workman. I need to work. I need to work at rightly dividing the word of truth. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There is a rooting process of me staying within the Bible, staying in within God's word, and really wrestling with the text. Wrestling with the text. What did... Jacob say about the man of God that he wrestled with, or when he wrestled with God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I want to stick with it. I want to hold on to that text until it is that I receive the blessing. When you have a nurse that looks at a patient's vital signs, or a pilot that looks at the flight plan, or a weather advisory, there's thoughtful consideration in being accurate with what it is that they observe. When we look at what God said, we want to have thoughtful accuracy in observing what God actually says. Helpful tip, reading thoughtfully. 
start out with a short epistle. We're going to look at the book of Philemon here in just a moment as a practical application. Read from very verse 1 all the way down through the end. Start with a shorter book of scriptures, 2 John, 3 John, 1 John even, book of James. Start from the very beginning and see if you can read all the way through the book to get a sense of where the book lies, the sense of the trajectory of the book. What do I mean by that? Where does the book begin and where does it end? Um, when you get over in Kings, book of Kings begins with, uh, David passing uh, his role off to Solomon, right? Uh, passing his kingship off to Solomon. And it ends with <laughs> the king of Judah being taken into fetters into Babylonian captivity. Right? Trajectory. Where does it go? If I can look and see the whole of a book, then I can really begin to notice the places where it is that the book takes me on this journey. Start and just read, uh, start at the beginning of a book as a general rule of thumb and, be, and read through it. If we want to get in the word more, it's also best to start with those shorter books. Whatever you do, there must be some method or the system to the madness of the reading of Scripture. Um, take a look at the book of Philemon. Book of Philemon. You may have to sing the song, Titus and Philemon, right? 25 verses. One chapter. And I see, as we're observing this, that I can read this probably in about 15 minutes. What can I observe about this book? How would you summarize the book's message in one sentence? If I were standing on an elevator, this is one of those preacher tricks I've been taught over the years. If I was standing on the elevator and somebody said, hey, I know you're a preacher, tell me what you're preaching on on Sunday. If I can't tell this person succinctly between the time the doors close and between the time they open on the next floor when it is they're getting off, and I'm still trying to explain what my sermon's about, it's, it's too much, right? What is the book of Philemon about? You got on the elevator and somebody said, tell me what the book of Philemon's about. Give me key words. Onesimus. All right, who is Onesimus? A runaway slave, right? Who else? What else is it about? Well, you got to say it's at least about Philemon because he bears the namesake, right? Who is Philemon? He was the owner of Onesimus before he ran away, right? Who's writing it? Paul is. What did Paul do? What was Paul trying to do? To get Philemon to take Onesimus back, right? Here's Paul trying to reconcile these two now Christian brothers and to bring them back. The book is about forgiveness, the book is about how Christians handle it when one Christian wrongs another Christian. How it is that we can be forgiving of one another. You know, that's a good summary of the book, isn't it? What can I find out from reading it about the relationship between Paul and Onesimus and Philemon? Here's the deal. Onesimus takes off from Philemon. He runs away, runaway slave. And somewhere along the course of time, Onesimus finds his way into the presence of a man by the name of Paul. Paul teaches this runaway slave the gospel. And this runaway slave says, yes, I want that more than anything. He becomes a Christian. Now the question is, as a Christian, how do I change my life? How do I, uh, 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 how do I reconcile me being a runaway slave with the fact that I've got a master who I've wronged and I've hurt who is also a Christian? So now I've got a Christian runaway slave and I've got a Christian slave owner how do I bring these back into harmony? 
Here's Paul trying to bring these back. If I'm reading thoughtfully, what do you think Onesimus is feeling? If you put yourself into the shoes of Onesimus, what are you feeling? Scared? Guilt? Hopeful, maybe. Maybe ignorant in some respects because I don't maybe necessarily know how a Christian's supposed to behave towards somebody who ran away. Right? Um, what else? There's probably a strong temptation, at least in my mind, if I'm trying to crawl into the skin of Onesimus, to say, isn't there another way? Do I really have to go back? Wasn't I freed from that whenever I was buried in the waters of baptism? Don't I, doesn't that alleviate all my responsibility to whatever it was that I was doing in my former life? A lot of people that make that argument today, right? That I can continue in sin, even though it is that I've been immersed into water for the forgiveness of my sins. I can raise up, and that automatically, you know, draws a, throws a blanket over everything I've done in the past that I don't have to change in my life now, currently. What about Philemon? How you feeling as Philemon? Here's this man who you hired maybe to work in your field, and you look up one day, and the man's gone. He hadn't done the work that he was supposed to do. How do you feel? It's not a trick question. Upset, cheated, angry, maybe vengeful at least in some respects. Right. That's exactly right. Exactly. Exactly. Cheated, robbed, angry, vengeful. How do you feel if you're Paul? Here's Onesimus on one side that feels this way. Here's Philemon that might feel this way on this side. What do you do as Paul? How do you feel? What are you trying to do? What's your mission? What's your MO? Reconcile. Why? So the two brothers can do what's right. So now I've got a responsibility to this brother to say, you've got to do the right thing. And I've got a responsibility to this brother to say, you've got to do the right thing. How do I appeal to them so it is that this person can say, yes, I realize I've got an obligation to go to this one. And this one is say, I've got an obligation to come and forgive this one. Right? It's interesting to me when you look at Book of Philemon, it is about forgiveness, but it's also about how we can be Christian peacemakers. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Paul even offered to pay himself to bring back that reconciliation. And Philemon, listen, whatever Onesimus has cheated you, whatever it is that he's done wrong, whatever wages you've lost, whatever uh, pay you've not uh, not gotten, whatever it is that that you you feel like you're owed. He says, Philemon, you put that on my account. He says, I'll pay for whatever it was that that Onesimus did. But what I want you to do is I want you to receive him back. But I want you to receive him not as a slave. I want you to receive him as a brother. There's an aspect of forgiveness here in saying somebody has to pay the cost whenever you forgive somebody, right? When it is that, you know, husband has a harsh word with wife and wife has a harsh word with husband. If those things could hurt. Those things could cut to the core. But here's the thing. When I say I forgive you, 
What I'm saying is I'm going to take that loss and I'm going to take that burden. I don't want you to bear that burden anymore. I forgive you. Therefore, it is that I'm going to pay the cost. Right? When God forgave us, who paid the cost? God did at Christ's expense. And so it is. You see a beautiful picture of this man standing here between these two Christian brothers and trying to bring them back into friendship, trying to reconcile them together. That's there. It's, there's a lot of beautiful lessons here in the book. And you talk about the issues of forgiveness. You talk about the issues of, of um, maybe anger and feeling cheated. You talk about the issues of peacemaking. And all of these things are here within this book. Why do you think this is significant enough to be included in the New Testament? Why is it that we read, well, the 25 verses of the book of Philemon? Why didn't God just say, forgive one another like he did in Colossians chapter 3? It's an example for us to follow today. It's not just the command of God, but here is a practical situation. And in fact, we don't, uh, it's, it's a foreign thought to our minds, you know, today to think about slavery, one person owning another. But when you look at it and you see that here is an opportunity for master to forgive slave and slave to come back to master in the way that he ought to. Again, that's a stark contrast. How much more so should we, as people who maybe don't own one another, uh, come back into friendship and look one another and say, I forgive you, and the other one say, I receive you? Or if we're in that peacemaking position, say, you need to go talk to him and he, she needs to come talk to you. And as you meet each other coming, if there's anything that's unresolved between you, I'll take care of it. But more than anything, I want us to be reconciled, brought back together. It's a living example. It's absolutely a living example, and I can point to it and say, well, I need to treat my brother the way that Philemon treated Onesimus. I need to go to my brother when it is that I've wronged them just the same way Onesimus went to Philemon. And can you imagine Onesimus carrying this letter to his master and showing up on his front doorstep and saying, here, the Apostle Paul brings this to you. Here I am. I'm back. We don't read what happened. We can make some assumptions about that, and we can assume that both of them behaved in Christian character, but Paul says by inspiration, this is the right way to go. This is what we need to do as people, and so we need to be forgiving, we need to forgive, and we need to be peacemakers, but we need to do the right thing between our Christian relationships because it's that important. That's thoughtful reading of a New Testament book. Reading a scripture, number two, repeatedly, repeatedly. Years ago, a preacher said, I read this passage, and when I finally read it for the hundredth time, the idea came to me. And we think, what? Why would you read a passage a hundred times? If I read it two or three times, that's incredible. And five or six times, man, that's miraculous. Dwelling in. Iced tea does not taste good unless it is that bag is allowed to stay in that water for an extended period of time. If I just take the bag and I dip it once and say, all right, the iced tea is ready, people are going to look at me like I'm nuts, right? Because that's not what it is. It has to allow it to steep over time in order for it to bring back about what it's supposed to be. Folks, God's word has staying power. It stands up to repeated exposure, and we cannot, we cannot exhaust its riches, Pretty much any other book can be read several times and absorbed and then put back up on a shelf, but 
there is depth and riches to God's word that if we have 100,000 lifetimes, we would never be able to exhaust it. Repeated, constant exposure to God's word is an important aspect of real observation. We have to be patient with scripture. We have to be patient with ourselves to benefit more from a particular passage. That's why I encourage you to, if you're trying to memorize scripture, write it down on a note card and let it run through your mind and, and pull it out or have it pop up on your uh, phone alarms you know, during uh, repeated times of the day and just stop what you're doing, read that scripture, dwell with it, let it steep in your mind and your heart, and then continue on. I've got time to tell a story. Um, use this example with my 11th graders at camp. I had a little dachshund, right, when I was growing up, little, uh, we call them wiener dogs, right? He was cute as dog, but uh, he was just, he was hyperactivity and he was, he was neurotic. And what would happen is, is we would leave him out on the back porch and he would go outside into the yard. We had a nice uh, chain link fence around the backyard. And uh, my brother and I, you know, um, growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of experiences with dogs, but we would go out there to play with Franklin. His name was Franklin E. Furter. And we would go out and we would play with him and, uh, and dog would just be so excited that he'd just jump up on you. And of course he smelled and whenever he got done, your, your hands just really stunk. But Franklin got bored during the days because he didn't have a whole lot of people to see him. What he would do is he would run around the outside perimeter of the chain link fence, barking at the cars as they drove by or the kids that would come by on their bicycles. And he just thought that was big fun. You know what happened to the grass over time around the edges of the yard? He made ruts, didn't he? The grass died around the edge of the yard, and you could just follow this little narrow wiener dog trail all the way around the edge of the yard. And, you know, that's exactly what it was. It was a wiener dog trail. Allowing scripture to steep in your mind is like establishing wiener dog trails in your mind. You are creating ruts where it is that God's word can dwell in your mind and in your heart. And memorization going over that and 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 letting it go repeatedly helps establish in your mind what it is that God's word says. I had a youth minister when I was growing up who had us memorize the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized in Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And I can go on and I'm not really thinking about that. Why? Because I've got that wiener trail of Romans 6 in my mind. I can just, I've gone over it and over it and over it. But you know what? There's a difference between that and getting it in your mind, which is great, but then stopping and saying, what is it that Romans 6 is really telling me? It's telling me, listen, folks, we've undergone a paradigm shift, a mindset shift, where it is that we're no longer thinking with this dead way of thinking, but we've been made alive through Christ, and now I've got a different master. I've got a different purpose, and I've got a different, uh, a different way of thinking because I died to that old way. And so as you're looking at it, certainly dwell with it repeatedly so it is that you can benefit from more passage, but we're reading thoughtfully, we're reading repeatedly. Number three, we're reading prayerfully. Prayerfully. Flip back to Psalm 23. Prayerfully. Psalm 23. We tend to think of the Bible and study and prayer as separate disciplines. I've got the discipline of my Bible reading, and then I've got the discipline of my prayer life. But what we find is they are vitally related. 
right? When the apostles said that uh, they wanted uh, deacons to help take care of the, uh, the Grecian widows there in Acts chapter 6, right? What did they say? The apostles said, we want to be able to give ourselves to study of God's word and to prayer. They are closely related. Prayer is a key to good Bible study, but good Bible study is also a key to prayer. When we learn to pray before and during and after we invest the time in observing God, what God's word says, we're going to find that we're going to get more out of it. We can learn more about prayer than we ever thought possible by learning to pray scripture back to God. The Psalms are the easiest way to do this. Have you ever sat down with a psalm like Psalm 23 and prayed, O Lord, you are my shepherd. I shall not want. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside the still waters. You restore my soul. You lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And you look at how it is that as you're reading this beautiful psalm that's in our Bible, what you're also doing is you're also praying that back to God. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any false way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A beautiful prayer. What you can do and what's going to make your Bible study more effective is you, if you can take a passage of scripture and read that and pray that to God, it's going to make it more meaningful automatically. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. We mentioned that just a moment ago, and let's uh, take the time to look and see that we can do it even with the epistles. Colossians chapter 3. Look at a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as God uh, Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I read that, and I've read that a hundred times. And I look up and I say, what did I just read? Right? I, I, I don't get it. Go back, read it prayerfully. God, you've made me one of your elect. God, I'm supposed to be holy and beloved. Help me to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Help me to bear with one another. Help me to be forgiving towards one another. Even if I have a complaint against somebody else, even as Christ forgave me, although I know that that's what I need to do, God help me to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And you can continue on. Let the peace of God, Father, rule my heart, to which I was also called in one body. Talk about the church, relationship between one another, right? Called in one body, and Father, help me to be always thankful. What's the difference between the two? One of them is looking at it and saying, this is a love letter from God to me of what he wants me to be. And the other one is just saying, I've got this passage of scripture that I've got to get through. And I want to get through as quickly as possible. 
We want the word of God to stick in our minds and our hearts so that we can be more his men, more his women. We need to repeat, uh, read scripture thoughtfully, repeatedly, and prayerfully. Number four, read scripture imaginatively. Imaginatively. If you're on one brain cell like I am, I-M-A-G-I-N-A-T-I-V-E-L-Y. Imaginatively. I always get my eyes and my E's confused, so there you are. It is sad but true that the majority of people that come approach the Bible read that it's, think that it's dreadfully boring to read it. The only thing more boring than reading the Bible would be hearing it preached, right, or proclaimed or taught. And yet the scripture seems so dull because, folks, we come to it dully. We think the scripture is dull because we come to it dully. And yet, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. When we read about the fact that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews chapter 4, it's for the living, active, dynamic nature of Scripture. It has great power, and we don't need to come to it dully. Good prayer to pray. Lord, clothe the facts with fascination. Help me to crawl into the skin of these people. Help me to see through their eyes, feel with their fingers, to understand with their hearts, and to know with their minds. We need a sanctified imagination. Have you ever thought about Abraham when he took his son in Genesis 22? His son, his only son, the one that he and Sarah had wanted for a hundred years. And God calls him and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, just in case you had any doubt who it was. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him and sacrifice him on a mountain I'm going to show you. Abraham gets up immediately the next morning and goes. As he gets to the place, he has his servants there, and he tells his servants, listen, you guys stay here. The lad and I are going to go yonder and worship, and then we're going to come back to you. What did he say? We're going to come back to you. Ever thought about it from the perspective of these two servants? Okay, here's the master. He said that we don't need a lamb, or he said that we don't, uh, we don't need an animal for the sacrifice, and what do you suppose he's doing? I don't know. But he said they're going to go up there and worship and come back to us a little later. I kind of wonder if that's not only uh, these two servants came along so that they could hear something of Abraham, so we can hear something of Abraham's faith. The lad and I are going to go yonder and worship, and then we are going to come back to you. When I go in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, it says that Abraham had faith in God because he had already promised God through Abraham's seed, through Isaac, through his son. His only son was going to uh, bless Abraham and uh, make his descendants as multitude, uh, uh, as, as many as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. And Abraham knew that God was able to give him that son, but he also knew that Abraham, uh, that God was able to raise that son up. But can you imagine it from Isaac's perspective? As Isaac grabs onto that load of wood, and he's carrying it however he did up that mountain. And he says, Dad, I said, here am I, my son. We've got the wood. we got the fire. Where's the lamb? What's Abraham's response? The Lord will provide. Can you imagine as Abraham bound the hands of his son, as Abraham laid him there on that altar, as Abraham raised that knife, prepared to go through and slaughter his son on this altar, what he's thinking about 
Can you imagine Isaac laying there thinking, what is going on? There was an indelible mark made on Abraham's mind. But I've got to imagine this indelible mark made upon Isaac's mind. That the Lord will provide. Folks, crawl into the skin of these people. Think about it from their perspective. Become Philemon, become Onesimus, become Paul. And when you do that, you're reading now imaginatively, saying, what did these people feel? I love the fact that Scripture doesn't paint people as, or these people as infallible Greek you know, gods and goddesses, where it's accentuating all of their positives, but you know, trying to memorize maybe some of their negatives. It paints them as real people, folks, warts and all. David, a man after God's own heart, had a problem with lust and adultery, didn't he? David, a man after God's own heart, had a purpose and had, had a measure of pride where it was that he thought that it would be great, even though he knew that God's command was to not number the people, to go out and number the people. We see them because they're people just like us. And if I can understand what their perspective is and understand them and how they responded to the word of the Lord, it's going to help me to better respond to the word of the Lord. Last one, read scripture purposefully, purposefully. Six lures or baits to use to read more purposefully. Who? Who are the people in the text? What do they say? Why do they say it? What is happening in the text? What are the events? How do they transpire? How did Abraham go from dwelling with this child and receiving this call of God in Genesis 22 and getting up and going to the mountain of Moriah and taking his servants and taking his son? What is happening in the text? Who are the people? What's happening in the text? Where is this taking place? Why did he go to a hill called Moriah? God told him to. What would God do generations later on the same hill in Mount Moriah? He established a temple, but Christ was crucified just outside the walls. God provided the lamb, didn't he? The lamb that took away the sins of the world, John 1.29. Where is this taking place? It may be stated, it may be hinted at. When is this taking place in relationship to other things? I used to think about the Bible in kind of a jigsaw puzzle type of way, where it is that I knew that Lot's wife looked back in Sodom and Gomorrah, and she turned into a pillar of salt. And then in our Bible classes, as we were growing up, we heard about uh, Paul, you know, teaching uh, in the Areopagus. And then we would hear the story about uh, Moses crossing the Red Sea. And then we'd hear the story about Jesus healing the leper. And all of these things just seem to be kind of piecemeal. If you can take and make a timeline of how these things are accomplished and when they're accomplished, it's going to give you a better perspective of how it is that the Bible's put together. Jesus and Lot's wife were not contemporaries here on this earth, right? Paul was not a relationship to King Saul of Israel, except that they were both Israelites. There is a understanding that we've got to lay out everything and say, okay, how does this fit in the big picture of what God's trying to do in his purpose? When is this taking place in relationship to other things? That's the large, but also in Jesus' life. When Jesus dies on the cross, where is that in relationship to everything else he's done? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, where is that relationship to everything else that, that encounters the span of his life here on this earth? When is this taking place? Why? Why is this taking place? Who, what, where, when, why? Why is this taking place? 
Why did God command Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, and go and sacrifice him? Sorry? It was a test. It says in there, so that he might test him. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God puts me through tests today? What does that mean? Does that mean that, uh, uh, that God didn't know the way Abraham would respond? Looking at it and thinking through things. And sometimes when we don't know the answer, just putting a big old question mark out beside the thing until it is we come to a fuller understanding. Why is this taking place? Last question. Wherefore? So what? <laughs> what are your three questions you're asking whenever a preacher's preaching? What? So what? Now what? Right? When you hear a man get up to preach, you want to say what? What's he telling me? So what? So why do I need to know it? So now that I know what he's telling me and why it is that I need to know this, now what? What do I do with it? How do I apply it? Think about it when you're hearing a sermon. Because when a preacher preaches, that's exactly what he wants to get to. So what? What difference would it make if this verse were never in the New Testament at all? What difference would it make if I actually applied this verse to my life? If I actually tried to be a peacemaker like Paul, you know, two Christians that are not getting along, you try and be a peacemaker in that. How do I, what's going to help? Book of Philemon. The book of Philemon, looking at Paul and the relationship he had with both of these Christians and saying, I want you two to get along. That's far different than a whole lot of the way that people behave. Oh, did you hear about the way that he wronged me? Oh, isn't he awful? Oh, I just hate that. And we try to develop tribes. That's not what God wants. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Bringing everybody back together. We're all in one body. We're one family. We're uh, made one under Christ. What difference would it make if I applied this verse? Who, what, where, when, why, and wherefore? Folks, the purpose of this class has been to study and help us encourage and read for the purpose of actually observing what God says. Hopefully, these five points you can take and immediately begin to apply to your own personal Bible study. But it is that we have to know what to do in each step. Our three steps, the big three, observation, interpretation, and application. Next couple of classes, we're going to just talk about observing, how it is that we make sense of what we see in the class. But take this this week and apply this to your daily Bible study. If you want uh, to go and read the book of Judges, that's a great place to go if you're just looking at narrative and saying, where did we begin? Where are we going? What's the trajectory of the book? And making sense of it. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. I heard Andy. Just me. It's the brain cell. Uh, Danny, did you have a uh, comment a little while ago? Danny's comment was that uh, memorization has really helped him. He said, uh, it deserves our emphasis, certainly with the young, but I've had a lot of older people say, don't practice those memorization things with me because I can't do that. <laughs> There's a difference between can't and won't. God has given you with an intelligent mind, and because you haven't done it in so long, it may be that you're out of practice, but it doesn't mean that you can't. Um, that's the bell, but let me give you one thing. Hannah's 100. Hannah's 100 is a book of CDs or a group of CDs that was done by Glenn and Cindy Colley and their children when they were very, very young. And what Hannah's 100 is, is basically taking scripture and putting it to song. And 
we've got volume four, which is an excellent one to get. It's the book of James, Hannah's 100, volume four. And what they do is they basically take from James chapter one, they break it up into small sections, but they sing through all the way through the book of James. We listen to those things in the car. And you know what happens is I got a four-year-old and six-year-old that can sing, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and uh, let patience have a perfect result that you may be perfect and entire that you may be perfect wanting in nothing i could sing all the way through chapter one chapter two of the book of james when you add music to it it's like a miracle grow for your mind because you can just establish a silly little tune and put it on there and next thing you know you've got that scripture memorized why is it we sing songs like, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised? That's right out of scripture. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33. You take a tune and you put it to scripture and it's going to stick a whole lot better. Again, you can do it if we apply ourselves to it. So it is that we want to be people that are in God's word and dwelling with God's word and living with God's word. Those of you that are, have very hello, those of you that have very young children or small children, or those of you that are just looking to memorize scripture, I would recommend Hannah's Hundred. They're goofy, they're goofy, goofy songs, but the principle and the words that they're teaching are anything but. And I would encourage you to think about that and do that. Thank you so much. And we will uh, start there next week in observation. And there will be a homework assignment with it next week. So I know you're thrilled about that.